I assume that the dual interests and the relations, the good business, military and intelligence relations, are so strong that neither side will want to damage them. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Well, U.S. stocks edged up in advance of the ECB meeting today. The U.S. Beige Book shows growth in all 12 federal districts and the bridge linking Hong Kong with Macau and Zhuhai could become a white elephant unless authorities address logistical issues. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll preview the uh, highly anticipated ECB meeting, uh, which is scheduled to be held later today, and we'll ask experts what this means for the economy, the global economy, and investors. Joining us are Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management and Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Then in our final segment, we'll talk with Alicia Torres of Collins and Kent International about a new series of Romero Brito paintings commissioned specifically for art investors. But first, let's look at uh, today's top stories. U.S. stocks edged up overnight with the S&P 500 ending at a new record high as investors brushed off weaker-than-expected labor market data and focused on an acceleration in the services sector growth. But trading volume continued to be light as investors took a cautious approach ahead of the ECB uh, meeting, deciding on stimulus and month and a monthly employment report. David Joy is a chief market strategist at Ameriprise Financial. I think we're due probably for some sort of correction, uh, you know, in the second half of the year. But I don't think that that would derail uh, this bull market, nor derail the economic Long recovery. Time. Yes, I think maybe we can push this another three, possibly even five years. There's still a lot of slack in the economy, but I think for right now, a uh, little too much complacency. Inflation may be pushing up. The Dow climbed 15 points to 16,737. The S&P 500 gained a fifth of a percent to end at 1,927, while the Nasdaq Composite added two-fifths of a percent to 4,251. The Beige Book is a collection of anecdotes about the economy published by the U.S. Federal Reserve. It reported yesterday that all 12 of the Fed's districts reporting uh, economic activity expanding during the current reporting period. Has the U.S. economy finally found its footing? Chris Rupke, chief financial economist at the Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, talks about the Federal Reserve's Beige Book report and its economic implications. It's interesting that, number one, it was done by the New York Federal Reserve. Um, You know, Bill Dudley, president of the New York Fed, has already come out and said that, you know, the markets and the Fed are sort of in agreement that a rate hike might take place somewhere around the middle of next year. So this report today about the moderate expansion of the economy in all 12 districts you know, kind of lays the groundwork for rate hikes coming, maybe sooner than we think. It looks very solid. Data before May 23, we know car sales, you know, he mentioned car sales quite a bit. Car sales since May 23, we know what they did in May, 16.7 million. That is the best level we have seen. That just came out yesterday. That's the best level since the recession ended. I mean, things look pretty good. Industrial production just a month ago in March made an all-time record high. 
So this report is consistent with that. It did come off a little in April from March, and we're going to get May data. Uh, this seems to suggest that production is still going. Abby Joseph Cohn, senior investment strategist at Goldman Sachs, agrees that the U.S. economy is moving well ahead, even though the first quarter GDP was an anomaly. We believe that the first quarter results, which you may know, showed a shrinkage of the U.S. economy, were a statistical anomaly. We believe that the U.S. economy, inflation-adjusted real GDP, is in fact growing at about 3%. And we think that for the remainder of this year and into next year, that is a very good assumption. GDP growth of two and a half, three, where the 3.2% point estimate we have for 2015 is consistent with ongoing growth in the corporate sector, profits continuing to rise. But most importantly, we believe that this pace of economic expansion is consistent with ongoing improvement in the labor markets. So ongoing improvement in growth, ongoing improvement in the labor markets. I think it's time to bring in our first guest, Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Good morning, Peter. Uh, Great to have you, as always, on Money for Nothing. Nice to be back. Thank you. (laughs) Now, uh, Peter, I think you have a little bit more of a, should we say, cynical, not so optimistic view of the U.S. Uh, You say that the the earnings in the U.S. are an illusion. Well, I, I think, you know, that there is a real argument to be said that maybe earnings have, have peaked in the U.S. I mean, everyone focuses on the fact that, you know, 74% of companies have now beaten mean earnings estimates provided by analysts. But we all know that those earnings estimates get revised down several times during the quarter. I think what's more important is if you dig into some of those numbers, the, the earnings performance is, is not as great as, um, you know, some of, those, some of those estimates are predicted. So we've seen quarter one operating earnings um, fall about 3.4%, but operating earnings include all sorts of one-time charges and material events. So if you look at reported earnings, um, they fell in Q1 uh, 6.8%. And if you look at the the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, which has just revised down now um, Q1 GDP, um, within that they provide um, a measure of sort of whole economy profits, and they're showing a decline of about 14% in after-tax sort of profits. So there is an argument to say that, you know, this constant uh, sort of improvements in profit margins, it it can't go on forever. And maybe there are signs there now that there is a peak in um, sort of corporate profitability. Why are markets rallying? I mean, there is, uh, you know, if, if you sort of read what analysts are saying, um, some of them are saying that they are actually concerned that volatility is low, but volatility being low, shouldn't that be a good thing for equities? Well, you know, there's a strange divergence going on at the moment. If you look at U.S. equity markets, they're going to um, sort of all-time highs. As you say, volatility is very low, which suggests a certain element of complacency on, on, on the part of investors. And at the same time, treasuries are rallying as well. Mm. Um, we've seen this year 10-year yields, which were at 3% at the beginning of the year. Um, they're now at 2.6. They spiked down to 2.4% last week. So that, that tends to suggest that there's something else going on. Either, you know, the U.S. economy is great and is motoring along, as equities to send, tend to suggest, but then at the same time, you shouldn't see yields so low and interest rates um, sort of so low. 
So there is this strange um, sort of divergence between the markets. But I think there are some specific factors going on in the in the US bond market anyway. There is a general shortage of treasuries, partly because the, the Fed is the biggest buyer. They've, they've loaded up their balance sheets with, mm. uh, with treasuries. And there's a lot of yield-hungry investors who are uh, particularly pension funds who are struggling to, uh, to buy at the moment. Okay, I think it's time to bring in our next guest, Richard Harris. Good morning, Richard. Hi, Renita. Always great to have you as well. Thank you. So, um, Richard, what is your take on this? I, th- I think that Peter suggested that one of the reasons why uh, equities are rallying is because of buybacks. Uh, I'd love to hear what you what you think. Well, I think there are lots of reasons why equities are going up. You know, we've just heard all that bullish news about the economy, and um, uh, that's very fundamental. And then we've also heard uh, from Peter that interest rates uh, uh, have been ticking down a bit. So the market's got a lot to be happy about. But I think Peter's actually got a very good point. We're seeing uh, earnings perhaps looking a bit fragile. Also, if you look at what's happening, we're just breaking market highs a little bit each time but on extremely low volume. In fact, volumes are sort of volumes that we're looking at pretty well near the end of the summer. Um, So that, to my mind, uh, gives quite a fragile situation, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the markets come back. And when they come back, I think they'll be much more in line with the kind of valuations that uh, Peter's talking about. So this is not a cyclical thing? Well... I, I think, you know, if you look within the markets, you'll also see some rather um, worrying sort of internals. I mean, if you look at the Russell 2000, um, the average stock now is down 22% from its high. So although, um, you know, the, the overall bigger market indices are looking quite good, a lot of stocks are starting to break down um, sort of within the market. And, and what supported it is, you know, the big stocks is that the increase in EPS. But, um, you know, as we mentioned, there's been a lot of share buybacks. This could be, um, you know, we've seen $160 billion of stock bought back amongst the S&P 500 companies in Q1. This could be the, the biggest year on record for, for stock buybacks. But, of course, it doesn't actually increase profitability. It makes the, the, the S number in the EPS better and therefore boosts EPS, but there's no new profitability, no new revenues being created as a result of all these buybacks. So uh, is it just by chance that I seem to have the two of you today who are sort of have more of a dismal outlook on the U.S. right, bef- right after, I should say, uh, these guys from the U.S. who are sort of excited about auto sales being up and excited about, um, you know, the beige book? Richard? I'm, I'm actually not, not too dismal. I, oh, I, I okay. hear what Peter's saying about the Russell. But, in fact, what's happened with the Russell is it's just gone up and up because it tracks small stocks. If you look at the uh, indices for the bigger stocks, we've had these sharp downward movements, maybe 6 maybe 8%, and they occur every three months, every five months or something like that. So the bigger indices have moved on ahead and then come back more towards a normal valuation. The Russell hasn't done that. Wyatt's had the big correction recently. And I think, well, we haven't had a correction really since January when we had the market was down 6 8%, something like that. So I think that uh, what the markets will probably find, they'll find an excuse somewhere. Maybe it'll be Europe, maybe it'll be Ukraine, something. They'll find some sort of excuse. Maybe it'll be Peter's idea about um, uh, earnings looking weaker. They'll find some sort of excuse to come down, to come back more to, to near real, real value. But I am still positive on equities longer term. I just think at the moment you could mm. probably pick them up 6 or 8% cheaper. Peter, I think he's saying you've got some pretty good excuses. <laughs> <laughs> I try my best. You try your best. Okay. Uh, and we'll have it no other way. Uh, I think it's time to uh, actually talk about the ECB. Today is the day of the big meeting. We've been talking about this all week. Everyone is anticipating it. Um, the question is what is on the table and what actually happens 
if interest rates go negative. Peter? Well, we're in uncharted territory here. I mean, the, the, the background to this is that we've had some shocking sets of um, inflation numbers out of the Eurozone. So we've seen um, inflation now at 0.5% in May compared to the ECB's target of 2%. Core CPI has fallen to 0.7%. And there's a, four countries in Europe that are now in outright deflation and a number of others teetering on the brink of moving into sort of deflation. So what can the ECB do? It's main refinancing rate is at... Uh, 0.25%, so it could cut that. But uh, the deposit rate is already at zero. So if the ECB you know, goes into negative territory, it's basically going where no central bank has ever gone before. Yeah, no no central bank ever. has ever made its deposit rate um, sort of negative and, in effect, charged banks for parking deposits at the ECB. So we really are in uncharted territory here. We don't know what the effect of this is going to be, um, what it's going to do to, to sort of markets overall. And markets right now are rather strangely sort of become while we wait to see what exactly the ECB comes out with um, sort of later today. But one thing is clear is that um, if deflation takes hold, it's pretty devastating for the economy. And we have a, a real live example in the Eurozone already with... Um, with Greece, where, you know, we have seen deflation and we've seen some pretty um, sort of bad economic numbers there. Their economy has fallen 25% now in the last um, sort of five years. We've seen property prices fall, you know, 40 to 60%. Wages fall about 20% in the last five years. So that is the effect of, you know, deflation on an economy which the ECB needs to try and um, take action to stop. But how exactly it does this um, and, and what the, the, the longer-term effects are are going to you know, be very much open for debate. Debate and discussion. Richard, uh, <coughs> are we expecting sort of huge volatility in the markets as a result of today's meeting, you think? You know, I honestly don't think so. I think this is one of those stages where all the markets are looking at something because they need to look at something. But I think the most outcomes are pretty well figured in the price. You know, if nothing happens, well, Draghi tends to do nothing anyway. Um, and if something happens, well, we're all expecting it. So I don't really ex expect much to happen. But, uh, uh, and I know I'm not the uh, European Central Bank, but, but my view is that actually I think they're in a blind funk at the moment. You know, they, uh, uh, they're terrified. And I can't really understand what they're terrified about because um, if we're looking at half a percent inflation, well, you know, Ten years ago, we'd have loved to have had that. If we got half a percent deflation, who cares? If we got 2% deflation for a year or so, who cares? Um, Peter's quite right that if you're looking at a situation like Greece where you've got substantial deflation, that's a problem. But Europe is not like Japan, and everybody's worried about the kind of deflation that happened in Japan. Europe is not like that. Uh, it's still many different economies. It's still many different markets. Um, the euro clearly is tying everything together, and that's making uh, economies slow to react. But fundamentally, I think the European economies are um, looking up, even in places like Spain. You're talking about people looking at investing in distressed properties. So I'm not as bearish as the European Central Bank. And quite frankly, I think the markets are probably going to look at this right over it. And next week, we'll have forgotten all about it. So the question then is, how does this affect the retail investor? Do we have an investment opportunity in Europe? Well, I think that um, – sorry, we're, we're all trying to dash in there. I think the thing is that the, the summer is going to be probably quite long and hot and not an awful lot happening. And as a retail investor, I'd be tempted to sit on my hands and maybe just go and lie on the beach. 
Okay, okay, that's a wise one. Peter, do you agree with that? Well, what, what will be interesting is, you know, what is this going to do to financial assets? How do you price financial assets when your discount rate is zero or, or negative? And, you know, ultimately every single financial asset is priced by discounting future cash flows to the present using whatever the discount rate is. And, and it starts to distort, distort, and we've already seen this, the pricing mechanism in markets. And in fact, you know, we're already seeing the effect of this on the US. The US will be an interesting observer here because one of the reasons why US Treasury bonds are, um, yields are falling is because um, yields on Eurozone bonds are falling. So if the 10-year German bond yields 1.4%, then US 10-year Treasuries yielding 26 still look very attractive despite the fact that um, you know, they've already fallen quite uh, substantially. So mm. you know, that we're in a global marketplace. What the ECB does is going to be watched very closely by, by the Fed and other central banks around the world. Okay, so let's, let's come back to Asia. Um, Richard, you've done some interesting research uh, recently on um, the, the markets since Tiananmen, the markets in China. Is that right? Since Tiananmen, I mean, you know, speaking of the anniversary that we've just, just had. Well, Tell us well, about that. It, it's extraordinary. I mean, I can remember watching TV and, and watching people running around the streets of Beijing 25 years ago. There wasn't even a Shanghai stock exchange then. It actually started in December 1990 at 100, and it finished last night at 2024. So that's a pretty impressive 60-something percent annual growth rate if you had had the um, energy to actually hold on all the way through. But also the volatility has been extraordinary. In the early days of China, we had markets rising um, uh, six or seven times and then falling by 70 or 80 percent inside uh, just a few years in the early 90s. Uh, so we saw tremendous volatility in that early days. And since, uh, of course, the highs of 2007, when the index was around 6,000, the markets dropped 60-odd percent. So China is a market that still has extreme volatility. And you can't help thinking that maybe it would have been easy if they'd opened the markets open to investors after all, because you can't get much more volatility than that. Absolutely. All right, uh, Peter, anything you'd like to ask or add or add to that? Well, I, I think, you know, I mean, I'm still, you know, positive overall on China. I mean, the, the, the main challenge for China is how it starts to rebalance its economy. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very much an investment-driven economy. Investment is about 55% of GDP, which is more than double the OECD average. So it's got to rebalance its economy. Um, we know that it's trying to deleverage its financial system, which in the long run is a good thing. But in the short term, that is going to cause a slowdown in economic growth. But, you know, China has got a huge amount of foreign exchange reserves to support itself during that process and financially is in a far better position than many other um, sort of economies around the world. World while it goes through that sort of economic restructuring process. Yeah, I guess one has to watch and wonder where the opportunities are. Okay, speaking of opportunities, uh, we'll be back uh, with the next segment on investing in art. So I'd like to thank uh, Richard Harris, Port Shelter Investment Management, and Peter Lewis with Peter Lewis Consulting. Thank you so much for joining Thanks, us Nita. on Money for Nothing. Thank you. What can you expect when listening to the 123 show? Well, you told me just to ask the questions. I, I will just ask the questions. You can spin it any way you want to. I knew when I recorded this album, I knew that I would, it would have value. I feel that there is a uh, there is a serious crisis in Hong Kong right now. You're joking. That doesn't really exist. And that does exist. I met uh, two really good boyfriends. Two at the same time? Um, no, not, not <laughs> at the same time. As the young people of this earth would say nowadays... 
YOLO, Noreen. Oh, I hate YOLO. The 123 Show with Noreen Mir. Weekdays from 1 until 3, only on RTHK Radio 3. This is Money for Nothing, and the time is now 8.22 a.m., and uh, alternative investors in Hong Kong are continuously looking for new ways to expand their portfolio. One of the things we've talked about before on this program is investing in art. Well, the artist Romero Brito has brought out a new limited edition series of his paintings commissioned specifically for investors. Alicia Torres of Collins & Kent International joins us now to give us the details. Good morning, Alicia. Good morning, Renita. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> So, Romero Brito, give us uh, give us some insight into this artist. Okay, well, Romero Brito, uh, he is a Brazilian artist we are so excited to have as part of our catalog. Um, he's really set himself as the icon of modern pop culture, we like to say. Um, he, is ha- he has a very positive and optimistic outlook versus uh, what his predecessors usually have with dark, uh, brooding imaginings. And, um, and so his stuff is very light and airy, bright, colorful, really optimistic, and it's um, a great breath of fresh air. Uh, and so we have been able to commission these works, these limited edition works, of an edition of 50. Normally, he runs editions of two to three hundred, and um, we wanted to offer our clients a more exclusive opportunity. And these are available exclusively through Collins and Kent International. And um, he has become an artist uh, with a great global reputation, working with the Kennedys and the Shrivers. Um, he's working with FIFA. He's the official artist of FIFA. So what better time than uh, for the World Cup? And um, and he has he also is uh, regularly compared to Pablo Picasso for his originality and his style. Uh, he's become a modern master of his own, and uh, these are all very important factors when you're determining who you do want to invest in in the global art community. Now, is this uh, series, this limited edition series of 50, is this specifically for Hong Kong investors? Yeah, specifically. Uh, we do have some investors who have already invested from Singapore and uh, Korea and other places in Asia, but it's for the world over. But it is released uh, also in Australia. We do have some of our Australian clients who took advantage. And it has done, I, I can't... I can't get this across that it has done extremely well. So um, we're really, really excited about it. It is the Asia-Pacific suite, so it lends itself to Asia. Meaning the content of the artwork is... Yes. So we've got the merlions from Singapore. We have some pandas. Um, There is this recurring theme he uses with with bears, which uh, lends itself to his to his charity Best Buddies, which he has with the Shrivers as well. So um, it is very it, it leans towards the Asia Pacific for sure. And, and what is making it specifically appealing for the Asian investor? Is it the fact that he's worked with the Kennedys and the Shrivers? Is it the fact that the World Cup is coming up? You know, what are the specifics? <laughs> you know, I think it's kind of a snowball effect. But um, the Asian investor wants something that there there is this there is. Um, a lot of people are investing in Chinese contemporary art, but if you look at it, most research is showing that even the Asian investor is really is going towards Western art. Um, Western art, when it comes down to resale, uh, people are going to people are going to recognize a lot of these these names more so than they would a lot of these Asian contemporary artists. So Brito, um, everyone's going to remember who Brito is, especially because of World Cup fame and um, and his dealings with the Shrivers and the U.S. presidents. Um, and so it is. It's a safe. It's a safe place to put your money, and especially the price point is not bad at seventy thousand. For two 70, pieces. 70,000 Hong Kong dollars for two pieces. Yes. Do you have to buy two or could you buy one? You could buy one at 35,000 a piece. Wow. Um, so 
Hong Kong dollars, that is. Hong Kong dollars. In terms of sort of investing in that, what am I looking at? What am I expecting it to go up to? By when? How can I make money off this? Or how quickly? Well, um, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would say that um, these are going to do, these have done very, very well in the past. The Britos have, just because of um, the way he has placed himself in the market, I would say you'd have to hold on to it for at least uh, five years, at least, to see any capital gain. But uh, this does come with our rental income, the 7.5% contracted income. So you would be having that 7.5% per annum for two years anyway. So, um, you know. Can you explain that when you say rental income? Sure, I can explain that. Mm -hmm. So we have two sides of our business. We have the um, strictly investment side where you're buying it to put on your wall um, to and hopefully resell at a later point as an investment to get your capital gain, your long-term capital gain. We have another process that we, we, we put our pieces into our rental program where we work um, – we have um, – we have global relationships with many different industries where we actually place the artworks on behalf of our clients into the rental program. So then that guarantees the the, the client who owns the piece to have 7.5%, and it also allows the rental client to have access to these wonderful, historically important works without the responsibility or, or the price tag. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Indeed. Except for the fact that I can't see my painting if I actually buy it. Well, um, not too soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, these pieces, we do have the images specifically for the burritos. Um, you are allowed to look at the image. Um, and in some of these, in some of these instances, um, they may be in our gallery. But uh, for the most part, you're getting it. It's contracted for two years. So after that, you can't hang it on your wall. Okay. And is Romero Brito um, featured in, uh, I forget now, remind me, there's, there's an art index which actually classifies all the different important Sure. Artists. It's called right? the uh, Print World Directory. Print World Directory. Okay, so so explain that to our listeners um, so that they can understand how to use that as a reference point. Sure. Uh, the Print World Directory is what we like to call our Bible. Um, it's uh, it's all the price references of where the sales have happened, when the sales have happened. So you can see, um, you can essentially see your artworks. Uh, growth. It would be, I like to say it's the equivalent of the uh, Kelly Blue Book in the United States for cars. You can see what it's, what it's worth, what it's sold for every time it has sold. And these are for public. Obviously, this wouldn't be for um, very private sales, but it is for auction, auction houses and, um, and gallery sales. So you have to report that, and then everyone knows how much it is sold for and what year. So then you can see your growth rates over the years, and we have those available. They come out every three years. And um, the and so the latest one was 2013. Very so, interesting stuff. Thank you so much, Alicia. Unfortunately, we're out of time once no again. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> but thanks for joining us this morning. That is Alicia Torres of, uh, excuse me, Collins and Kent International Galleries. Well, here we are. It's uh, 8:29 a.m. The Nikkei has opened uh, up slightly, 0.3 percent. It is at 15,113. Australia's ASX index down slightly to 5,425, and Seoul's Kospi down also just slightly to 2,003. A quick look at the weather forecast for uh, the remainder of today. It'll be mainly fine, apart at apart from isolated showers in the morning. Hot during the day with a maximum temperature of around 32 degrees in urban areas and a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. Temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 85%. And now it's time for the news with Samantha Butler.
The head of the group, which organises the annual June 4th candlelight vigil, says the spirit of the 1989 pro-democracy movement in Beijing is now in Hong Kong. Li Chiu-yan, the chairman of the Hong Kong Alliance in support of patriotic democratic movements in China, told RTHK that last night's record turnout for the 25th anniversary of the Beijing massacre was clear evidence of this. The fight for democracy in China uh, in '89 uh, is, you know, quite uh, the same uh, as what we are now asking for through universal suffrage in Hong Kong. So uh, the Occupy Central uh, is just like '89; uh, they have occupied Tiananmen Square. Uh, but in Hong Kong, uh, we are now going to uh, uh, demand for democracy in Hong Kong. So. Uh, people you can associate uh, a similar mood or similar spirit. And we hope that in this round in Hong Kong, uh, we will win. The alliance says at least 180,000 people turned out for last night's vigil, while police put the number at under 100,000. President Obama has met the Ukrainian president-elect and has promised to support his plans to restore peace to the country. Radio Australia's Jane Cowan reports from Washington. Speaking in Warsaw, Barack Obama called Ukraine's new president, billionaire sweet manufacturer Petro Poroshenko, a wise selection to lead the country and pledged $5 million in military assistance to Kiev, including body armor and night vision goggles. We will not accept Russia's occupation of Crimea or its violation of Ukraine's sovereignty. Our free nations will stand united so that further Russian provocations will only mean more isolation and cost.